Welcome to the Jeremiah Patterson Show and happy Thursday. Thank you for joining me today, Thursday, June 11th. When you were in second grade, raise your hand if you knew what you wanted to be when you grew up. Most people would raise their hand and say, eh, I kind of knew what I wanted to be. Other people would raise their hand and say, uh, well, I, I had a little plan in mind or something little in mind. When I was in second grade, I knew that I wanted to be president of the United States for some reason because my my cousin, Tierra, she had gave me this book on presidential history. Thenceforth, I started studying that book on presidential history, and that is ultimately how I became fans. That is ultimately how I became fascinated with presidential history, and that is why I started the podcast, U.S. Presidents. But ultimately, when you are in second grade, most people are not really thinking about what they want to be when they grow up or their ambitions and careers because usually that's what you start thinking about in high school, right? But you do have some some ambitious dreamers in second grade, some people who think ahead, some people who do think strategically, some people who do think differently than the crowd. And so I want to begin with this. When he was in second grade, there was this Future Americans Project. It was in the class, and this project was about what do you want to be when you grow up. This second grader wrote, Future Famous Americans. When I grow up, I want to be a Supreme Court judge. When people say, Your Honor, he did rob the bank, I will say, Be seated. And if he doesn't, I will tell the guard to take him out. Then I will beat my hammer on the desk. Then everybody will be quiet. End quote. That second grader was George Floyd. That officer uh, that had his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck was for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Mr. Floyd died in the, the hands of law enforcement. He died in the custody of law enforcement. He wanted to be a Supreme Court judge. And once again, a remarkable letter. His teacher held on to that letter for 38 years. Mr. Floyd has passed away. His death was down 17 days ago. It sparked lots of civil unrest all over the nation. Just on Tuesday of this week, Mr. Floyd was laid to rest in Houston, Texas near his mother. And the funeral was emotional and lots of celebrities and fantastic singers as well as some of his family members that spoke on talking about their experiences with him being in their life. And so when you lose someone like that, it's just devastating, especially if the person that you have lost is your father, especially if you have lost your father, the person that plays with you, the person that helps you read, the person that invests in your education with you and spends a lot of time with you, if that is a person that you have lost personally, then you feel it from your heart. And you really do feel that. But if you are younger, it's sort of inexplicable. You don't really understand what's going on because you're very young. When President John F. Kennedy was killed, his son, uh, Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy had to explain to her children that 
their husband had just, excuse me, she had to explain to her children that their daddy had just been killed and shot. She explained it to Caroline. I believe Caroline partially understood Caroline Kennedy. She explained it to John F. Kennedy Jr., which they called him, um, I believe is JFK Jr. You know, John Jr. And you know, he was, he was young. He didn't really understand. It was sort of inexplicable to him. And so that is ultimately the feeling now that is ultimately being explained from a mother to her daughter. Gianna, which is the daughter of George Floyd, her mother had to explain to her that her, her mother had to explain to her that her father died because he couldn't breathe. And that is the emotional, emotional statement and ultimate thing she essentially had to said, had to say to her daughter. And so I'm going to play this audio clip now. Uh, brace yourself. It's very emotional. You will feel empathy towards this and you also will feel heartbroken. I'm going to play this audio clip now of the daughter, um, of, of George Floyd's daughter speaking about the death of her father. And I'm also going to play the audio clip of George Floyd's wife speaking about the loss of her husband, Mr. George Floyd. What do you want people to know? Kind of that I miss him. George Floyd's six-year-old daughter, Gianna, has a message for the world. What was your dad like? He played with me. She didn't have to play with nobody else because daddy was going to play with her all day long. I mean, that was his baby. He loved his little girl. Gianna and her mother, Roxy Washington, sat down with Good Morning America. How did you explain what happened to your daughter? I didn't. But Gianna knew something was wrong. She's I hear them. I hear them saying my daddy's name. And that's all. She doesn't know what happened. I told her that her dad died because he couldn't breathe. Gianna may not know exactly what happened to her father, but she does know everyone is talking about her dad. She's seen here in this video with one of George Floyd's closest friends, NBA veteran Stephen James. That changed the world. On Wednesday, Gianna attended her father's memorial. The service was live streamed and featured a number of tributes and rallying cries in George's memory. George Floyd should not be among the deceased including from George's brother, Philonis Floyd. We come up together. We didn't have much. Our mom did what she could. My brother, we did a lot of things together, from like talking with my mom, dancing with my mom, cooking with our mom, brothers and sisters. Uh, man, so much. You know, I'm just staying strong as I can because I need to get it out. I need to get it out. Everybody wants justice. We want justice for George. He's going to get it. He's going to get it. Uh, I don't have a, a lot to say because I can't get my words together right now. But I wanted 
everybody to know that this is what those officers took from At the end of the day, they get to go home and be with their families. Shiana does not have a father. He will never see her grow up, graduate. He will never walk her down the aisle. If it's a problem she's having and she needs her dad, she does not have that anymore. I'm here for my baby. And I'm here for George because I want justice for him. I want justice for him because he was good. No matter what anybody thinks, he was good. And this is the proof that he was a good man. <laughs> Once again, the mother of George Floyd's daughter speaking there and also George Floyd's daughter, Gianna, speaking about the, the death of her father. Uh, Brooke Williams, she is the, she's, Brooke Williams is George Floyd's niece. She delivered yesterday a passionate speech at his funeral, and it was a remarkable speech. It talked about the racial injustice in the police system and why hasn't anything changed. And it also talks about someone talking, and, and it, it also talks about someone saying, make America great again, but when was America ever great? Once again, th that powerful, powerful speech. I'm gonna get to that in a second. But I wanna quote uh, yesterday from a pastor who was at that funeral. He said, quote, racism did not start during our lifetime, but it can end during our lifetime, end quote. And you know, ever since I, ever since I heard that and I watched it on, on, the, on, the, on the video live, it sort of stuck to me. Because yes, racism did not end in our lifetime, but we as citizens right now, we as citizens of the 20th century of 2020 here in the United States of America, with everything that we are watching, we as citizens can't end racism right now. We as citizens can put an end to this racial injustice. <clears throat> and how do we do that? Well, number one, social media. I bet everyone has a social media page, minus myself. <laughs> but, you know, everyone has social media. Everyone likes, everyone has like Instagram, like Snapchat, I mean, Twitter, Facebook. Use your social media platforms to spread positive messages, to make financial contributions to Black Lives Matter, or to, to, other, social, to other social programs that are fighting and condemning racial injustice. You can do that yourself as a citizen of the United States to show that you care. Or if you do not have a social media platform, you can protest or you can show love to others by having conversations about race, which tend to be very difficult. But ultimately that will have to transpire because we cannot keep 
covering these stories. We cannot keep dealing with this racial injustice. And so what do we do? We spread the word. We make change. We effectuate change. And also we vote for people who will effectuate change in offices. And so that is the ultimate test for us as Americans right now. And what we are doing right now is quite remarkable. Lots of the peaceful protesters right now, they, their signs are amazing. I saw this one sign from this white protester. She said, I will never understand, but I am here with you. And you know, that is ultimately true. Some people will not, some people will not understand the pain and the grief that black people go through when they lose someone or when racial injustice is done. We are still in 2020. Racism is something that should not be still here, but yet it is. More than years after the Emancipation Proclamation Act was put into effect, after segregation ended, after the racist governor of Alabama, George Wallace, stood in the school doorway in Alabama to block black students from enrolling in that school. And you know, it is exacerbating. But we can change it. And so let us work to change it. Let us educate ourselves on this topic. If we are not yet comfortable with sharing our perspectives on this topic or sharing the way we feel with others on this topic, let us educate ourselves and ultimately change the world because protests are not just taking place here in the United States, but internationally. It started in Minneapolis, Minnesota, then it started spreading here to South Carolina, then to Los Angeles, then to Santa Monica, California, then to New York, then to Utah, then to North Carolina, then to Texas, Houston, where George Floyd grew up, then to Raleigh, North Carolina. It spread. Then internationally, inevitably, people started picking up on it in Germany, in London, all over. Racial injustice is not something that just happens here in the United States, but it happens all over the world. The question is, how are we going to confront it? It is systematic racism, so how do we dismantle systematic racism? Well, we work to do things that will contribute to annihilating that system. As I said before, Brooke Williams spoke at, Brooke Williams is the niece of George Floyd. Brooke Williams is George Floyd's niece. And she spoke yesterday at his funeral. Here is that audio clip now. I'm going to take my mic off so you can hear it. Here we go. Hello, my name is Brooke Williams, George Floyd's niece, and I can breathe. As long as I'm breathing, justice will be served for Perry. First off, I want to thank all of you for coming out to support George Perry Floyd. My uncle was a father, brother, uncle, and a cousin to many. Spiritually grounded and activist, he always moved people with his words. Their officer showed no remorse while watching my uncle's soul leave his body. He begged and pleaded many times just for you to get up, but you just pushed harder. Why must this system be corrupt and broken? Laws were already put in place for the African-American system to fail. 
And these laws need to be changed. No more hate crimes, please. Someone said, make America great again. But when has America ever been great? Those four officers were literally on him for nine minutes. And none of them showed they have a heart or soul. This is not just murder, but a hate crime. I share happy memories with my uncle. Now that's all I have, our memories. I still can't pull myself together to how he is calling my grandma a name. I believe my grandmother was right there with open arms saying, come home, baby. You shouldn't feel this pain. No one should feel this pain. My most favorite memory with my uncle was when he played, when he paid me to scratch his head at the long days of work. <laughs> we arrived at home. We even created a song about it called Scratch My Head, Scratch My Head. Yeah. <laughs> but after that, I knew he was a comedian. He always told me, baby girl, you're going to go so far with that beautiful smile and brains of yours. Mm -hmm. Another favorite memory is when me and my grandmother was so worried. I mean, she was crying. All I remember is me saying, Granny, it's okay. We'll find a way. But I wasn't entirely sure about how we were going to get to my uncle's PJ's wedding. We had nowhere to contact anyone. But here comes my uncle, busting through the door like Superman. <laughs> I was young, by the way, probably 10 or 11. My grandmother was, always, was also handicapped. And he had this big truck we had to ride in. I was wondering, how was my grandmother going to get in that truck? But he just placed it in the truck like it was light work. I never questioned anyone's strength. But it was unbelievable how my uncle and grandmother broke their backs to always see their children smile and made a way when it seemed impossible. Once again, George Floyd's niece, Brooke Williams, speaking at his funeral yesterday. She delivered a passionate speech at his funeral. It was absolutely <clears throat> and incredibly remarkable and amazing. Yes, when has America ever been great? Amazing. John Lewis, a civil rights legend and also a congressman, <clears throat> he says he is essentially he says he's very moved by the protests that have been transpiring all over the nation, not just all over this nation, but internationally. John Lewis says, quote, it is very, very moving, very impressive. I think what the people in D.C. and around the nation are sending are sending a mighty, powerful and strong message to the world that we will get there. He goes on to say, quote, It was very moving to see hundreds of thousands of people from all over America and around the world take to the streets to speak up, to speak out, to get into what I call good trouble, or to get in the way. And because of the action of young and old, black, white, Latino, Asian American, and Native Americans, because people cried and prayed, people would never forget what happened and how it happened. End quote. Once again, from John Lewis there, talking about how these protests are just incredibly amazing and remarkable and a historical moment. And you know, I myself, when I look back on this moment years from now, I will say, wow, this is a remarkable moment. It, it was a remarkable moment. That was incredible. It was also historical. Hopefully, I will be able to also look back on this moment and say, yes, change was actually done. change actually went into effect. 
The officer that had his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds was charged uh, with second degree murder. He was initially charged on May 29th with first, excuse me, a third degree murder. Then charges escalated to second degree murder. His bail is set at $1.25 million. This was Monday of this week. The New Yorker writes, quote, fired police officer Derek Chauvin appeared before a judge by video conference from jail, where he was handcuffed and sitting at a small conference table. Minnesota Assistant Attorney General Matthew Frank asked Circuit Court Judge Denise Riley for an increase in Chauvin's bail to $1 million with conditions or $1.25 million without conditions. And so ultimately it ended up and resulted in $1.25 million as the bail was set. Three other officers, the three other officers that were in charge, excuse me, the three other officers that were charged and that were on site while Mr. Floyd was murdered were also charged with second degree murder and manslaughter. If Derek Chauvin is convicted, he will face up to 40 years in federal prison. If you look at the video of the officer's knee on Mr. Floyd's neck, on Derek Chauvin's, on, excuse me, on, on Derek Chauvin's knee on Mr. Floyd's neck. If you look at that audio clip from a different angle that appears to have surfaced online, if you look at that audio clip, it shows Mr. Sh it, sh it shows Officer Derek Chauvin's knee on Mr. Floyd's neck, but then it also shows two other officers with their knee or Apply, applying their body weight on this, onto Mr. Floyd's back. And so that ultimately added more pressure. And so when you tell someone to get up, when you have someone on your neck and yet two other people on your back, that is almost impossible. And so Mr. Floyd repeatedly said, I cannot breathe. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Yet they did nothing. They remained there. That officer remained on Mr. Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Then after he was con then after he was unconscious, that officer's knee remained on Mr. Floyd's neck for two minutes and 53 seconds after the medical team had already arrived trying to take Mr. Floyd's pulse. And so if that officer is convicted, he will face up to 40 years in federal prison for his reprehensible and diabolical actions that took away an innocent human life. And yet, there is a lot more to get to tonight, especially in the city of Minneapolis and what they are planning to do with dismantling their police department. And that story is up next. At a time when we're asked to sacrifice, we step up to do our part on the home front, on the front lines, to lend a helping hand and hold each other up. We are resilient vigilant and we'll get through this because we're better together even if we're a little farther apart 
Before we go on, I want to say something that I inadvertently stated uh, prior on the prior segment. I said racism did not end in our lifetime. What I meant to say by that is, quote, racism did not start during our lifetime, but it can end during our lifetime. So I'm very sorry and I apologize for that statement. But what I meant to say is racism did not start during our lifetime. We can make changes and additional efforts to end it during our lifetime. Their plan is to dismantle the Minneapolis police force. What does that mean? What will the result come? So what does it mean to dismantle or should I say defund the police force in Minneapolis, Minnesota? Well, USA Today has remarkable reporting on that. And here they say, quote, it means taking funding away from police forces across the country. In many cases, a city's or county's legislators allocate money in yearly budgets to fund police departments. Defunding the police is just that literal. The largest push, the large, excuse me, the larger push to defund the police is about more than taking money away. It's a push to reallocate those funds into social programs. Christy, <clears throat> Christy E. Lopez, a Georgetown law professor, writes, quote, defunding the police means shrinking the scope of, poli of po excuse me, of police responsibilities and shifting most of what government does to keep us safe to entities that are better equipped to meet that need or to meet that requirement, end quote. Why should we defund the police? Well, USA Today goes on to write, quote, Proponents of defunding police say policing in America has a long history of disproportionately affecting and harming communities of color. From law enforcement tracking down enslaved people who escaped in the South to enforcement of Jim Crow laws, quote, that history is ingrained in our law enforcement, end quote. Isaac Bryan, the director of UCLA's Black Police Center, Black Policy Center, told CNN. Alex S. Vital, a professor of, so of sociology at Brooklyn College who wrote the book The End of Policing, explained to her, explained to NPR that there is a, quote, myth, end quote, that police are politically neutral and enforce laws to benefit everyone equally. The article then goes on to write, quote, the National Violent Death Reporting System, a federally maintained database, found that the fatality rate among black people was 2.8 times higher than among white people. In cases when police used lethal force, black victims were more likely to be unarmed than white or Hispanic victims, end quote. Once again, this remarkable uh, piece from... USA Today reporting on what, Minneapolis, what the city of Minneapolis is planning to do while they will defund their police or dismantle their police department. And so this is another thing that has happened in American politics this week. And so Minneapolis plan does plan to disband, hold on, disband their police force. The, the president of the Minneapolis City Council yesterday, she spoke on why she thinks it is vital to disband the police force. Here she is now. Right to it, we have breaking news out of Minneapolis at this hour where Minneapolis City Council members at a rally about an hour ago have announced their plan to disband the Minneapolis Police Department. Andy McDonald was at the community event at Powderhorn Park where they made that announcement. He joins us live. Andy, what do you know? 
Hey, thank you, Chris. Well, their main message here was to invest in the community and not the police. About a thousand people were here at Powderhorn Park, many still present here on this side of the slope as they watched Minnesota, Minneapolis City Council member, a majority of them, uh, vote in favor of replacing, removing Minneapolis police and replacing them with community-based public safety. The sign in front of the state stated their motive to defund police. City Council President Lisa Bender said their efforts to reform have, quote, failed. The officials say they're looking to other ways to maintain public safety in their communities and are starting a conversation on how to move forward together. Our commitment is to do what's necessary to keep every single member of our community safe and to tell the truth that the Minneapolis police are not doing that. Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department, to end policing as we know it, and to recreate systems of public safety that actually keep us safe. Once again, that was the president of the Minneapolis City Council. Uh, the New York Magazine wrote a remarkable piece on that as well. They write here, quote, for years, activists had argued that Activists have argued that the MPD has failed to actually keep the city safe, and city council members echo that sentiment today during their announcement. MPD's record for solving serious crimes in the city is consistently low. For example, in 2019, Minneapolis police only cleared 56% of cases in which a person was killed. For rapes, the police department's solve rate is absolutely Excuse me if I am announcing that word wrong. Let me spell it out. A-B-Y-S-M-A-L-L-Y. Low. In 2018, their clearance rate for rape was just 22%. In other words, four out of every five rapes go unsolved in the city of Minneapolis. Of Minneapolis. Hmm. When some council members have provided hints of what the changes might mean, sending mental health professionals or social workers to respond to certain emergencies, for example, the group did not present a single unified vision for how they would replace the policing in Minneapolis. End quote. This is something that has fascinated me and also something that I am also quite interested in. Now, th this is something that has this. Whew, this is something that has drawn my interest and also intrigued me like oh defunding the police what does that mean what will inevitably happen like who are you going to call when your uh, fire is at your house who are you going to call when someone in your house has a heart attack or something or a bad health condition who are you going to call in that instance and so the mini we are waiting on a response from the minneapolis city council and how they plan to do that and how they plan to replace the police force with public safety officials who they claim will actually effectuate change and actually get things done to keep the citizens in Minneapolis, Minnesota safe. We'll be right back. The Washington Post writes, quote, Colin Powell gets it, Condi Rice doesn't. They go on to say, quote, CNN host Jake Taper. So this is the transcript of the interview of which Jake Taper has with Colin Powell. 
He writes, quote, I mean, he says, quote, and former Defense Secretary General Jim Mattis said, quote, Donald Trump is the first president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the American people, does not even pretend to try. Instead, he tries to divide us, end quote. It sounds like you, it sounds like you agree with that, Colin Powell. You have to agree with it. I mean, look at what he has done to divide us. Forget immigrants. Let's put a fence and let's put a fence up. Excuse me. Let's put a fence in Mexico. Forget this. Let's do this. He is insulting us throughout the world. He is being offensive to our allies. He is not taking into account what our foreign policy is and how it is being affected by his actions. And the one word I have I have to use with, with respect to what he's been doing for the last several years is a word I would never have used before. I never would have used such any of the four, I, I never would have used with any of the four presidents I have worked for. He lies. He lies about things and he gets away with it because people will not hold him accountable. And so while we're watching him, we need to watch our Congress. I watched the senators heading into the chamber the other day after all this broke with the reporters saying, what do you have to say? What do you, what do you, excuse me, what do you have to say? What do you to say? They had nothing to say. They would not react. End quote. Whew. Donald Trump has been president, of course, throughout this entire through throughout the civil unrest that has been transpiring in the awakening after the death of George Floyd by the hands of police in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And you know, it has been a long couple of weeks. It has also been a heartbreaking and emotional couple of weeks for our nation. Yet the president in the White House is tweeting and inciting and insinuating violence. He is encouraging it. I mean, literally, in 1967, a racist police officer said, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. For the president of the United States, the leader of the, of the nation, the leader that sits in the White House and makes decisions for this country, that leader, for the same leader that we elected on election day, for the same leader that, is, that sits in the White House, for him to tweet that when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Insinuating and encouraging and implying that people go out there and cause violence, encourage violence. For him to do that, I mean, it was just preposterous and almost inconceivably bad. That piece goes on to say, quote, so here's, here's Jake Taper speaking. Why is it so important to you that President Trump not be reelected? Colin Powell. Because I think he has been not an effective president. He lies all the time. He began lying the day of inauguration when he got into an argument about the size of the crowd that was there. People are writing books about his favorite thing of lying. So what we have to do now is reach out to the whole people. Watch these demonstrations, watch these protests, and rather than curse them, embrace them to see what it is we have to do to get out of the situation that we find ourselves in now. We're America. We're Americans. We can do this. We have the ability to do it. 
and we ought to do it. Make America not just great, but strong and great for all Americans, not just a couple. Mm. Oh, wow. That is, that is a powerful statement there by Colin Powell. Once again, quote, make America not just great, but strong and great for all Americans, not just a couple. And end quote. In other words, not just one race, but for all races. Don't just say make America great again for one race and only applying and only appealing to your supporters. But if you're if you are the leader in the White House, make America great again should be should stand for all Americans, all citizens of this country. The Washington Post writes, quote, Powell indicates did Powell indicates not only Trump's rank dishonesty, racism, and ineptness, but a Republican's refusal to do anything about it. His message is clear. Voting to keep Trump in office is anti-ethical to support for American ideals. He is under no illusion that Trump or his enablers can change. They must be defeated. Then, then there was Rice, who you will recall, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson for Secretary of State, an inexplicably, an inexplicably poor use of her success, seemingly unable to grasp the political significance of the moment she was interviewed about Trump's... Sorry, there are some... Okay, there is some out here, like they're reporting here. Not they're reporting, the reporting is remarkable. But there are some lines that are missing here from the article that I have printed out. Sorry about that. I will, I apologize. End quote there from this remarkable Washington Post reporting. Essentially, what is happening in our nation? We will look back on this moment and historians will look back on this moment and ultimately judge Republicans for their conspicuous and noticeable silence. Republicans have been diametrically silent. Not even a peep, not even a pin drop. They're just silent. I mean, come on. You're not condemning the racism here? The president insinuating violence? I mean, so far, the only two Republicans that have spoken out have been Senator Mitt Romney of Utah and Senator... Lisa Murkowski of the great state of Alaska. And so if this is the only thing that we get as a democracy, if these are the only people who are going to condemn the current president in the White House, if these are the only people that are going to stand up to the man in the White House, come on, what has our country become? And so this is the ultimate test for the Republican Party right now. And their silence is not making anything better. They are in the ship with the president and they are going down. They are in the room with the president and they are giving him the gasoline to throw right on the fire, a metaphor that I have used on this show before. And the fire is getting bigger, is getting more powerful. It's rising up. Who's gonna stand up next? Or will, it, or will history just look back on this moment and see Senator Lisa Murkowski and Senator Mitt Romney, the only two Republican senators who stood up to this president? Who's going to stand up next? Who's going to stand up next? 
and yet here is the last note. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Jeremiah Patterson Show. It was incredible to have all of you listen to this episode of The Jeremiah Patterson Show where I covered the death of George Floyd and how civil unrest has been transpiring all over the nation. I also covered his daughter speaking about the death of her father and also I covered his wife speaking about the death of her husband. I also covered the funeral of George Floyd and also how his niece, Brooke Williams, recalls her uncle, George Floyd. I've also spoken about the incompetent, feckless, and weak leadership at the top of the federal government right now, and also quite dangerous incompetence at the top of the federal government right now with the president sitting in the White House tweeting violence, encouraging violence, insinuating violence. But thank you for listening to this episode of The Jeremiah Patterson Show. Join us tomorrow night where I will talk about the voter suppression that transpired and also some of the elections that transpired that I did not cover yet. But I will get to, so stick around and I will see you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Jeremiah Patterson Show. Have a great day. Stay positive and inspired. Stay indoors. And if you are protesting or if you have been to protest, make sure to get tested. Please, your safety and your your health is vital. God bless.